You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we'll be looking today at chapter 14. You'll find this on page 923 of the Pew Bibles. And this morning we're looking at verses 8 through 18. Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. Hear the word of God. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Well, Lystra was a relatively small Roman colony, a rather insignificant little town. In 6 BC, the historians tell us that it was established for defense against local warlike tribes. We know from verse 7 that Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the gospel in that region. And they were on the front line seeking to evangelize the native people. This was frontline ministry. And this is going to teach us something about the beauty and the grandeur of God's creation. And it's also going to help us appreciate the utility and value of general revelation. So they're in Lystra, and a lame beggar is listening to them, and apparently his condition is well known. This man had been crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He had never experienced the sensation of moving his lower limbs. Think of that. And of course, long before this, I think he had given up hope of ever walking on his own. He was a cripple. But as he listened to Paul, I imagine his heart to use the language of John Wesley, was strangely warmed. 
The Spirit opened up his heart to believe, and the man responded in faith. Our translation indicates that the man had faith to be made well, verse 9. He had faith to be made well. Literally, what it says is that the beggar had faith to be saved. Now, that word saved in Scripture can refer either to physical healing or to spiritual rebirth, salvation. In this instance, the precise meaning, I think, is not altogether clear. Obviously, the man was healed. We know that. But he was also, in, by faith, born again. And perhaps there's no need to pick one because I think it can mean both. With the healing of his legs, the man experienced the healing of his soul. And somehow, Paul was able to discern this effectual call on the man's life. After all, he's an inspired apostle. Why would we think otherwise? He was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he had this extraordinary ability to do and to discern all kinds of things as an apostle. So seizing the opportunity, Paul shouts, stand up on your feet. And I think it seemed to be at the time a pretty bold and perhaps foolish thing to, pro to proclaim. Everybody knew that this man was a cripple from birth. That was God's will. But at once, the man sprang up and began walking, and it was a true blue miracle. Apparently, God's will was that this man bring glory to his name. And you can think that the man must have been ecstatic and thrilled beyond his wildest dreams. His body was now made whole, and at the same time, his heart was made right. Imagine the tears of joy and the shrieks of laughter and the unrestrained praise. He can walk. He'd never done that before. And as with all the miracles, so this was intended to confirm the messenger and his message. In other words, this healing was designed to authenticate the apostle of Christ and the gospel. This is true. What they were preaching about Jesus Christ was absolute truth. You remember when Nicodemus came and was talking to Jesus by night. He was afraid, didn't want the other Jews to know he was doing it. But Nicodemus came and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Nicodemus, how did you know that? Because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this learned, reasonable, discerning Pharisee had witnessed the miracles of Jesus, and he realized that they confirmed Jesus' identity as a teacher sent from God. Only God can alter the course of nature. The miracles were Christ's credentials, so to speak. And likewise, the miraculous healing of this lame man proved that Paul was an ambassador of Christ. Something had happened that was totally unexplainable. And at the same time, this miracle was meant to elicit a response from the crowd. And that's what happened. But it wasn't the response that the apostle had wanted. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, 
They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. The people were amazed by this healing. They'd never seen such a thing. And they knew at once that this was an expression of some supernatural power. But they ascribed it to the wrong source. And this wasn't surprising. After all, these were pagan idolaters. These people were steeped in the worship of mythical Roman gods, which were false. And in response to the healing of the lame man, they wanted to deify Paul and Barnabas. Because you see, some 50 years earlier, the Latin poet Ovid had started a local legend. The supreme god Zeus, he said, and his son Hermes had visited the hills of Phrygia. And they were disguised as mortals who were seeking hospitality among the natives. No one cared about them. Nobody welcomed them in until a poor elderly couple offered them lodging in their tiny little cottage. So the gods rewarded this couple, as the legend goes, but he just, they destroyed all the others by a flood. So in Lystra, Zeus and Hermes were worshipped as local deities. And when Paul showed up healing a lame man, they believed these gods had come to earth. The local legend made everybody there fearful of being inhospitable. So they began shouting in their own dialect to, to, a desire to deify them, to worship them, to offer sacrifices to them. And at first, Paul and Barnabas didn't understand what was happening. They were shouting in their native tongue. The gods have come down. Priest of Zeus getting ready to sacrifice. And how different this was from the reaction of the Jews when the true God arrived. As an aside, John tells us when Jesus came to his own, his own people did not receive him. Indeed, when the eternal Son of God arrived, they hated him and crucified him. And that's our natural bent. That's who we are. It's hardwired into the souls of sinners. By nature, you and I, and we always feel it, are prone to rebel. And if given the chance, we'd nail them again. We would. That's what makes God's love for his people so astonishing. It's not only the fact that we are loathsome creatures in his sight, but the fact that we oppose him. Paul says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now he goes on to say we were his enemies. And yet he reconciled us by the death of his son. But the Lystrians were unaware of this. They were ignorant pagans. And when Paul and Barnabas realized what was happening, they tore their robes in horror because Lystrian idol worship was sinful. It was blasphemous. It was abhorrent. And as vehemently as they could, the missionaries protested against it. The people were unwitting blasphemers. They didn't know the true and living God. And so for the first time in the book of Acts, Paul is preaching to a purely pagan audience. Now this is instructive. Purely pagan. No Jews, we assume. 
And what he said here was different from what he typically preached in the synagogues. Because among the Jews, Paul could assume a great deal of biblical knowledge. They knew about the Creator. They knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But among these pagans, Paul had to start from scratch. The Creator. It was necessary in a pagan city where they worshipped many gods. And let's not miss the lesson. We need to be conscious of those to whom we speak, me especially. There was a time when Americans had a working knowledge of the Bible. It didn't matter if you were a churchgoer or not. A whole generation was reared on McGuffey's readers, filled with biblical allusions. But today it's vastly different. Many have little to no knowledge of the Bible. In our conversations, I don't think we should assume biblical literacy. This doesn't mean that we reduce the ministry of the word to the lowest common denominator, but it does mean that we should be plain and clear and willing to explain more fully the things of God. In the service of public worship, there's going to be a wide range of capacities, even among God's people. Some of us are going to have to reach up to what is said and try to understand. Others are just going to receive it, and still others are going to have to be patient. What's important is that Christ is preached and the gospel message is made understandable because as Paul says in Philippians, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So Paul told the Lystrians about the true God and the only God and the God who created the universe because they have been exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They have been worshiping the creature instead of the creator. And it was vanity. These were vain things. They should turn to the living God. He alone is the sustainer of all things. And he will not share his glory with another. He makes that clear. And to him we give thanks, as Elder Parkin did earlier, for rains and fruitful seasons and food and gladness, all the things that he gives to us. And in years past, he allowed the nations to go their own way, long-suffering. But with the coming of Christ, it's vastly different, as we shall see. But I want us to notice three primary things that Paul mentions in his sermon among a pagan audience. Number one, the true and living God created all things. Heaven, earth, the sea, everything. There is no reference here to Old Testament passages or prophecy. Paul pointed to general revelation, the trees, the sky, the stars. He made mention of the familiar threefold division of creation, heaven, earth, and sea. And in so doing, what he did was highlight both the unity and the sovereignty of God. He is the great landlord of the cosmos. He's the owner of everything. He made them. And again, as Elder Parkin read, when the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne, this is in heaven, this is what they said. 
Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Those 24 elders acknowledge that God is the creator, the first cause. He alone is the maker of all things great and small, and for that reason he's worthy of worship. This is the most important thing we do as people. He preserves everything, he governs everything, and everything depends upon him. And the Bible says that it's by his will and for his glory that everything exists. You and me included. And some of the ancient philosophers, you can read them, Greeks and Romans, they recognized from nature that there is a God. Paul says, what can be known about God is plain to all people because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Man's innate sense of deity. You know it. I know it. You sense it, and I do too. Our conscience tells us there is a God. And the world cannot make itself. That's absurd. The theory of eternal matter is absurd. God created the universe. He holds it all together by the word of his power. And that's where the apostle began in preaching to a pagan people in Lystra. That's number one. Number two, Paul was quick to highlight God's amazing divine forbearance. You may remember how God revealed himself to Moses as a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is patient. He waited long in the days of Noah. With patience, we're told, he endures vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And as Paul points out, God has displayed incredible patience among the Gentiles. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. You know something, it would have been just and entirely understandable if he had destroyed man long ago. The fact that history continues with man still in existence is an absolute wonder. The nations are ignorant and blind. They knew God but did not honor him as God or give him thanks. He made clear his invisible attributes. He is God. He's eternal. He's good. He's powerful. But according to Romans 1, I'm believing mankind suppresses that truth. We see it all around us. Man should know God and man should love God, but sin has corrupted his heart and God has not left himself without witness, but the unbeliever denies it. It's, it's insanity. Sin is irrational. There's no explanation for it. Everywhere we look, we see evidence upward and outward and inward. But we ignore it. 
and sin has blinded the unbelieving mind and we are by nature prone to suppress it and reject it and deny it and ignore it. It has so distorted our hearts and minds as human beings that we naturally hate the creator and we will not bend the knee. Paul says in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's number two. But then number three, Paul underscores God's providential care of the entire world. He did not leave himself without witness. Thank God for that. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now, mind you, the Gentiles did not have the scriptures. They were not in covenant with God. They had no access to the promises. And Paul says about them that they had no hope and were without God in the world. And yet the nations cannot excuse their disobedience and idolatry on that basis. God bore witness to himself and the things that he made. He did so in a miracle. All around them, even in them, God was testifying to themselves. The dictates of their own consciences testified to their morality. Where does that come from? Right, wrong, good, evil, true, false. The bounty of common providence attests to his goodness. Crops, food, wine to gladden the heart. The psalmist says the, the earth is full of his riches. And so on that final day, no one will be able to say that there was not enough revelation. God gives air to breathe and food to eat and wine to drink and friends to love. And there is so much evidence that we should love him by nature. We should delight in him and give thanks to him. And those pagan Lystrians had lived their entire lives enjoying his goodness every single day. They'd wake up. They'd have food to eat. And the witness of God's providence was sufficient to leave them inexcusable. That's the way Paul succeeded with difficulty to dissuade them from their pagan worship. Instead of glorifying God, the astonished people wanted to deify men, but the Lord sent Paul and Barnabas on a mission to deliver them from sin. And there would be converts, we'll learn later, and Paul would return there to strengthen their souls on a return visit. But for now, I don't want us to fail to appreciate the wonders of God's creation and providence. Isn't it incredible? The world that he made is absolutely magnificent. It's an amazing creation. The mountains and the valleys and the fields and the seas, the sun, moon, and stars, these things are spectacular. And because you and I are immersed in it, we see it every day, we're prone to take it for granted, aren't we? Thankfully, Scripture constantly extols the grandeur of God's works. Let all the earth fear the Lord, said the psalmist. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. He's worthy of praise. He deserves to be admired. 
And the universe is an implicit summons for us to consider his majesty and his greatness. It leads our thoughts, I believe, to reflect upon his creative and providential power. Everything is upheld by him. And we as human beings are not only creatures, we're his creatures. Know that the Lord, he is God, we're told. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And yet how often do I overlook how special it is to be alive in the maker's dominion. It's true. We should keep in mind the creator-creature distinction. There is this infinite distance between us. At the same time, we're his creatures. He brought us into existence. He placed us in a wonderful world, filled it with good things, and he did it for no other reason than that it was a sovereign good pleasure. What a rich variety of good things we can enjoy. Food, drink, family, friends. He satisfies hunger. He puts joy in the heart. He gives children as a reward. And yet we can't let these good things distract us from eternal things because that leads to my second point. In spite of all of our common blessings, we still need a redeemer. Paul says to the Romans, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Did you get that? All the good things that God continues to provide are meant to be means to an end. The rains, seasons, food, gladness have an ultimate purpose. God intends for you and I to be led by them into a relationship with him. It's not enough for us to know that God is good and does good. We must also know that he is holy. And he calls us to repentance. And he does this not only by his law, but he does it through his goodness. Isn't this a wonderfully gracious method for him to draw people to himself? He leads, us not, he leads us like rational beings, not driving us like animals. In his grace and mercy, he extends kindness day after day in leading us to repentance. How many times have you heard this? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, more accurately, it should be said, why do good things happen to bad people? The answer, so that through God's kindness, he might lead them to repentance. Is it not exceedingly wicked to sin against such a good and kind God? The divine kindness that is meant to melt and soften the sinner's heart? You know, oftentimes judgments will harden the heart. We see that in Revelation. They shake their fist at the Almighty. They make the soul obstinate judgments. But if God does good to a sinner who constantly does evil, it might just melt his heart. God is rich in mercy, and if only the world realized just how merciful he is, 
He bears with sinners from cradle to grave while they violate his laws and profane his name and rebel against his will and reject his son. He bears with us. And we presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. How many years then have they heaped up loads of transgression? But despite all this, God continues to be kind and it should affect everyone's heart. Peter says, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So count the patience of our Lord as salvation. I hate to say it, but because of hard and impenitent hearts, sinners are simply storing up wrath for themselves. Everyone who continues in sin without repentance stores up wrath. The God who is rich in mercy is willing to forgive through Jesus Christ, but he or she who refuses to repent will have this wrath stored up for eternity. That leads me to my third and final point. God's witness in creation and providence is useful in evangelization, evangelizing others. Because the Bible says everybody knows God. There's evidence within and without, as I've said. And it can be helpful to highlight the testimony of creation and history. In Job, ask the beasts and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea who will declare to you. God's ongoing preservation of the cosmos is a sermon of his goodness and the universe speaks a language that everyone can understand. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And there is no need to be timid in pointing to God's witness in creation. He made it. If we are going to evangelize our friends and neighbors and family members, it has to start where their knowledge ends. It might require beginning at square one. There's a creator. I want to introduce you to him. Because the times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That sense of deity that is within you and me confirms that this is true. You know, when Helen Keller's teacher, and most of, not all of you probably know who Helen Keller was, blind, deaf, dumb, could not speak. Total darkness, physically speaking. When Helen Keller's teacher, Ann Sullivan, had given her the names of physical objects and sign language, Miss Sullivan had the idea to try to explain to her God. So Annie Sullivan tapped out the symbols for the name God in her hand. And much to Sullivan's surprise, Helen spelled back, thank you for telling me his name. For he has touched me many times before. 
How's that possible? Blind, deaf, and dumb Helen Keller knew something of God from within. She did not know his name, but she was well aware of his existence. The Lystrians knew there was a God, but they suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. So Paul began by referring to the Creator to whom everybody will give an account. And against that backdrop, he could speak of judgment and grace intelligibly. And the same is true for us. Let's keep in mind the importance of general revelation because it provides a way of extending the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our creator. We give you thanks for the gift of life. We exist, have our being, and are able to move in you. But above that, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, in whom we find the forgiveness of sins and acceptance in your sight. We ask that the Holy Spirit will help us to sing praise with hearts filled with joy and thankfulness. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.